Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the East Go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. And again, Greg Dutcher is not here. But we do have the incomparable Steve Hartland joining us. Steve, how are you doing today? Well, I don't compare to Greg. I, I don't know with whom I'm incomparable, but it is great to be here. Thank you. It is, and you are totally busy, as we said on the previous podcast with Sally. This is going to be your third one. I know, right? Am I a glutton for punishment or what? I, you know, uh, this week you were here uh, potentially more than Greg. And I say potentially because Greg will be joining us on Friday for the the podcast we're going to do on uh, uh, pop pop culture ninja, um, and he may join us for the second one we're going to record, but that has yet to be determined. And I'll have three, so this is three. my time for an attempt at a hostile takeover. That's right. I should seize it. I know, right? This is this is it. This is this is your moment, <laughs> Steve, moment. to convince me why I should trade mm. Greg in for you. Yeah, I'm feeling rather passive on that subject. <laughs> I think it should stay Greg. That's good. I, I agree. I agree 100%. Yes. So um, this is actually a podcast that we're going to be doing. Steve has been one in the making for a long time now. Um, last month, we talked uh, a little bit about apologetics and brought up some things during our question and answer time. And I had a student, former student of mine, who was emailing me back and forth about some very good specific questions he had about the defense of the gospel. Uh, we had a young lady in our church, Megan Bollinger, who also was uh, emailing and corresponding about some questions that she was having uh, in regard to apologetics. And um, I'm I'm a horrible person. I've been I, I told you this offline. I'm a horrible person to email with because I. <clears throat> I'm more of a person where I I enjoy getting face-to-face with someone. I feel like I can more effectively communicate the nuance of my position. Um, But trying to do it through email just sucks. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you're that way or not. No, I'm not really. But I still prefer, much prefer eyeball to eyeball, get all the verbal cues and so on, nonverbal cues. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just horrible Um, in have a difficult time doing it. So I'm happy to say that this one I'm very excited about because we're going to take a lot of those questions and, and try to answer those. Um, on the outset, let me just say, um, you know, some of the best apologetics that I have done has been through the method of just giving people uh, recommendations on books to read. Mm-hmm. Um for me, and I don't always have the time to sit down and and put up a good articulate defense of the gospel or of uh, certain theological issues. And so, uh, what I tend to do is just hand people a copy of a book if I have an extra one with me, or say, "Hey, you know what? If you're really curious about you know what I think about this, go check out this book. Um, it's it's just worth its weight in gold." Um, so before we begin, Steve, I just want to you know throw a couple books out there that I'd recommend to people, and then if you have a couple that mm. you would recommend, um, I think that would be great, and then we'll dive into some of these questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, on the onset, the first one that I can think of, one that I actually um, read every year is Mere Christianity by mm. C.S. Lewis. Uh, I used it in my curriculum when I was a teacher um, as a part of a Christian literature course that I did. And so for me, Lewis's um, – the, the, the brilliant thing about that book is that Lewis starts at the beginning, literally, saying, you know, 
let's let's look at the atheist point of view. There is no God. Why should we assume that there is a God? And so he starts moving into the realm of, okay, this is why we articulate there is a God. Because of the things that we see, the things in nature and the creation and the design. And he just moves through that section brilliantly. And then, okay, so now we've established that there is a being out there. There is a God. We haven't even called him the God of the Bible, but there is something out there. So how do we then narrow down to the God of the Bible and moving through every step so I, I've been very influenced by him and that line of – that chain of reasoning as well. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's just um, – that that would be the number one that I would just recommend because I think it's so good. Second one um, is actually – it's a compilation book that Ravi Zacharias did. I'm a huge Ravi Zacharias I knew guy. his name. I was going to bring his name up were next. You, were so, you? Yes. I was going <laughs> to say to every question here tonight, I'm just going to say, go listen to Ravi yeah. Zacharias for a week and he'll cover this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. I'm actually curious to hear um, if, if – um, to see if, uh, the, if you've read this book or not, Beyond Opinion. I have not. You have not. This is fantastic. It's uh, – uh, like I said, it's a compilation book that he put together. Hmm. And it's, I think it's about 10 or 11 chapters and someone from his ministry staff takes Mm. a religion and dissects it Mm. and compares it to Christianity. Um, For those of you listening who um, are really interested in how to articulate your faith to a Muslim friend, um, we're we're seeing the Islamic nation very much on a widespread – Islam is is coming up more and more and more. It's being more and more accepted in the United States. Um, and that section, uh, I'm trying to remember um, who, who wrote that particular section, um, is, is just worth its weight in gold because um, this gentleman actually takes the Quran and looks at the whole Islamic state um, and then looks at sections of the Quran uh, within context, I might add, and shows why there are errors flowing through the Quran. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Beyond Opinion, uh, it's done, put together by Ravi Zacharias, but different members of his staff contributed to the different uh, religious ideologies that are out there. Um, and then the last one uh, was actually the one that really got me thinking more specifically about apologetics and logic and argumentation um, book called JP uh, book by JP Moreland called love your God with all your mind. Hmm. Um, another one, just fantastic book. Hadn't have, hadn't heard of JP Moreland before. Um, I'd heard of Ravi Zacharias, love listening to him, but um, JP Moreland is actually the one that got me reading more in apologetics. And he just does a great job at um, looking, I mean, it's it's really it's a it's a great teaching tool because he looks at how to understand things from a logical perspective. He looks at taking ideas that we often look at as scientific in the American culture and says those those ideas really aren't scientific; they're philosophical. Yes. and you have to understand. Very important point. It, yeah, you have to understand that um, science has its place in what it can do and what it should do, but it can't be applied to every problem in life. It has its limitations, doesn't yep. it? And a lot of scientists don't realize that when they make pronouncements, they're actually doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. They're not doing science any longer. Yes, yes. Um, one book that I actually read, I don't, I don't actually particularly recommend it because I think um, I actually could not get through it. It was so 
muddled, but uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you read it or are familiar with it at all, Steve. I skimmed it. Okay. that's it, It's best skimmed or cliff note. It made me mad. Did it? Oh, it did. Okay. Just because I thought he, uh, he exercised sleight of hand so many times. See, it's funny. It didn't make me mad as much as it annoyed me hmm. because to me within the first um, – well, within the first few – pages essentially what he's saying is um there is no faith you know faith is for weaklings you know you're blind if you try to exercise any kind of faith all things can be proved through science and then he goes on to essentially say what can't be proved through science mm-hmm. today will one day be proved through science so that whole he needs like to prove that through science exactly you know the whole the whole idea that um, you shouldn't have faith in God, but you should have faith in me in that science. one day it will be proved. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's an interesting book to read. Um, if you're well, it's an interesting book to skim um, and to to cliff note. But uh, I I think I got as far as chapter four, and then I, I tried to go through it twice actually, and just I couldn't do it. Yep, I could not do it. Um, any books that you would recommend, Steve? I would, but first I'd like to go back to Ravi Zacharias sure. and give him my kudos as well and say that an, uh, an awful lot of Christian apologists, uh, and I am not a Christian apologist, even though I taught a class in apologetics for one year <laughs> at Redeemer with high school seniors, and that made me really uh, you know, figure out what do I believe with more precision. Yeah. Nonetheless, I'm not an apologist, but a, a lot of apologists write like machines mm-hmm. information machines and they back their dump truck up and back and dump all their information on you and there's not a lot of finesse like with c.s lewis there's brilliance and yes. finesse and storytelling and the whole thing ravi zacharias is not only an information machine but he touches your emotions yes he moves you by the stories he tells yes and he doesn't just move christians who are already there with him he moves non-christians by mm-hmm. the stories he he's just an amazing combination of things in one man yeah so i honestly would say if this podcast uh uh increases your interest in apologetics just start listening to ravi zacharias yeah. on your commute to work or somehow somewhere yeah uh, google him youtube him watch the videos download just, some podcasts yes amazing guy uh, but beyond that, let's see. Books I've read recently that were really helpful to me are um, Nancy Piercy's Total Truth. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, no. All right. Really fine book. A pastor friend of mine uh, had a son who wanted to go to Rutgers, mm-hmm. and he told him, you may go to Rutgers. Before you go to Rutgers, you've got to read this book, and we're going to talk about it all summer long. Mm. <laughs> so a uh, very fine book. Kenneth Blanchard's Does God Believe in Atheists not was really either. helpful to me. So much information in that book about what can and cannot happen in terms of the genesis of life in the beginning and uh, change of life forms, macroevolution, mm-hmm. what's wrong with theories of macroevolution. Mm-hmm. Um, on a more popular reading note, a, a book books we keep on hand at our church and give out to people who mm-hmm. inquire are the Lee Strobel series, The Case oh, yes. for Christ, The yes. Case for Christianity, and so on. Those have been very helpful. He was a, you probably know, he was a newspaper reporter yep. who set out to do a thing on why you shouldn't believe in Christianity, right. and he wound up believing yeah. in Christianity. Worked for the Chicago Tribune, wasn't was it? Was that it? I know it was a prestigious yeah. paper. Yes, didn't know it was that exactly. So uh, his books are really helpful. 
Um, you know, I go back to the Francis Schaeffer era. Yes. I was alive then, so I've I've been helped a lot by Francis Schaeffer. Some hard reading, some mm-hmm. of that stuff, but his book Escape from Reason and The God Who Was There, yeah. those were really helpful to me in forming some some sense of apologetic uh, direction. Yeah. I just got to say, Steve, uh, I wasn't alive then, uh, but <laughs> I have a uh, former teacher of mine. He is one of my uh, good friends now, and I have him to thank for introducing me to Francis Schaefer. Mm. Um, Mark Lester, this is for you. Um, I don't think he listens, but that's okay. Um, he... His bookshelf, um, his office, I would go into his office. He was our high school guidance counselor, and his bookshelf was just lined with Francis Schaefer mm. books. Mm-hmm. And as part of a fine arts course we had to take, um, we had to read his book, um, How Should We Then Think? Or How Should We Then Live? Live. Live. Um, and so it was just uh, – I didn't appreciate it then as a senior. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. But getting into college, um, I learned to appreciate what that book helped me to understand um, as I was in college. And so I, I can say that I, I do appreciate Francis Schaeffer and, yes. and, and the way he um, articulates the defense of the gospel. Well, here's a little bit more of my background. I did not become a Christian until I was a high school senior. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to that time, probably in part because I was not a Christian and in part because I was intellectually immature, I didn't read anything. Mm. Uh, I, correction, I read Road and Track magazine. Sure. That was about the only thing I read. And I read that religiously. I subscribed to it. I really yep. liked it. And uh, you know, I'd memorized zero to 60 times for different cars. And so I didn't read anything. Then I became a Christian, went away to Bible college. And one of the first books I had to read for an apologetics course was Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason. Oh, wow. And I struggled. I remember reading like five pages and asking some other students, can you understand this guy? And they were all like, oh, yeah, it makes great sense to me. <laughs> but, oh, man, I'm in trouble. I'm really in trouble. But I just came to love Francis yeah. Schaeffer over time yeah well and what's uh, what i love about him and lewis uh not i'm sorry not lewis um because actually believe it or not lewis was a horrible debater hmm. he was very good hmm. um at at writing and putting his thoughts down um on pen but on the spot he was actually horrible opposite of you uh well i don't know about that but because <laughs> you said it's difficult for you to write but you're great on your feet it um well thank you um <laughs> Uh, lost my train of thought. Uh, Ravi Zacharias. So Schaefer and Zacharias are just so great on their feet, so much so that they entertain questions, you know, they would entertain questions live from the audience. But what they both did that was absolutely amazing is they would never rush to defend something. They would always sit back and Mm -hmm. listen Mm -hmm. and wait for the moment, wait for the the Mm -hmm. chink in the armor, if you will, to what the person was saying. That's good. Um, and, and I love that. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the story from Schaefer, but he was um, talking, I think it was at Labrie, where he uh, was a uh, professor, if you will. If you will. Um, and he was talking with one of the students in uh, the dorm, and the student was talking about, you know, this idea of uh, just moral relativity and how, you know, things don't matter. And so the student had a coffee pot boiling and Francis Schaefer picked up the coffee pot and put it over his head and said, so it doesn't matter if I pour this on you. (laughs) Um, And that kind of thinking Hmm. is just, it's amazing because a lot of people like these quick little, you know, things, Oh, you know, more relativity, you know, it's what everybody wants, what everybody thinks. 
until it starts affecting you personally. Hmm. Yeah, and there's, then there's a standard. There's a similar story. I thought you were going to tell this one. Uh, this happened at Labrie as well. So Schaefer's discussing with some young man, and the young man keeps saying, Sir, the young man was like a, a verbal deconstructionist. We can't really communicate. We can't understand each other. Language is impoverished mm-hmm. medium. So the, the guy kept saying to Francis Schaefer, uh, Sir, I don't think we're communicating. Sir, I don't think we're communicating. After a while, Schaefer said to him in a gruff voice, Go get me a cup of tea. And the kid said, What? He said, Go get me a cup of tea. So the kid got him a cup of tea, and Schaefer said, I think we are communicating. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like, you can understand what I say. You just don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I love about Schaefer, I really love this about Schaefer is that he was not just an armchair theologian or apologist. And I'm not saying other guys are either, right. um, but um, some of them are. But but Schaefer was first and foremost you know, a boots-on-the-ground evangelist mm-hmm. with people living in his homes and yeah. eating his meals and burning up his curtains with their cigarettes and whatever. And <laughs> that, you know, that literally happened. Um, and I, I love that. He reminds me of the Apostle Paul, who was – there's a, a book about Paul titled Missionary Theologian. Paul, mm-hmm. Missionary Theologian, Robert – Rayburn wrote that. Uh, I like that he's a missionary first and a theologian second. Yeah. We lack those today. Yeah. Francis Schaeffer was one. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I think you're so right on that point. And I think we need more people like that. We need people who are missionally living out their lives with other people. Because yes. then, then at that point, once you've established your relationship with someone, you can do some of the brash things that Schaefer would do, and you know you could make some of the statements that he would make. Um, I think Ravi Zacharias is in a little bit of a different category because he is um, so uh, renowned around the world. Yes, um, in this so day sought and age, after as a speaker, that that you know he cannot know someone someone can stand up and he can you know basically insult them and, yeah. and it's you know it's taken in essentially good humor but but mm-hmm. people understand this is why he's here he's here to specifically put forth a defense of the gospel yes um and and so he's not necessarily in that instance trying to build that relationship but i think building relationships is so key to defending the gospel yeah yeah amen on oh, no. Real life level. Hey, a few more books, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Go ahead. Philip Johnson, not the one on staff at Grace to You, mm-hmm. but the one who uh, was Professor Emeritus of uh, Law at UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's still even Emeritus, but uh, he's written a number of fab- fabulous books mm-hmm. on apologetics. Uh, and the fact that he was a, a law professor at Berkeley yeah. says a lot. Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to reason pretty well to teach law at right. Berkeley. <laughs> uh, so he would reason well. Um, and then there's one other I wanted to mention, and now I completely forget who that was. It'll come up later. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. We, we're live podcasts, yeah. and we love to do oh, stuff. Oh, I know who it's. It's William Dembski, and he represents a whole group of people who are the uh, uh, intelligent design movement. Oh, okay. I really like a lot of what those guys are writing, and there were some yeah. really smart people writing some great stuff for that movement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, an interesting movie. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to see it or not, but Expelled. Um, I have not. Ben Stein. Oh, I did uh, see it. Yeah. Pardon me. Yeah. I did. That's right. Um, he He's he's a Jewish guy. He's yeah. not even a believer, but um, because of his faith, he's been pushing back on the atheist movement to um, you know talk about, no, there is a God. These are the evidences for God. Um, and so uh, Expelled was, uh, to me, it was a, a – gr- 
uh, great entertaining movie. Um, he does such a good job with his dry humor. Yeah, he's a character, isn't yeah. he? Um, but really does a good job as well at presenting facts and surrounding himself with experts to um, back up those things that he's saying. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, really like impressive. that one. Yep. Agreed. Um, we, we are going to uh, dive right into some of the questions that we have here. Um, but I do want to kind of give an honorable mention um, to uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Um, and the reason why McDowell. I like that one is because I think um, people are divided on McDowell and um, his approach and things like that. But More Than a Carpenter to me is uh, the cliff notes of Lee Strobel's mm. books. Um, he doesn't he doesn't have the thick volume that strobel has but to me a lot of the same content and evidences are in there it's just condensed down mm-hmm. um or the, the volume evidence that demands a verdict mm-hmm. yes. it's like a huge yes. outline of apologetics yes yep so so many good books out there and you know these are just some of the ones that we are um recommending so um so our very first question that we have is um let, let me ask you that question because okay. I already told you offline I have no idea how I'd answer that yes. question and you do so I'll ask you all right go ahead. okay so uh, Nathan some people say that Bible stories were actually taken from previous sources so they're not you know unique or original to the Bible somebody sure. else had them first they're massaged a little bit to fit sure. the Bible what would you say to that yeah I I would look at it and first I would say many of the stories that people t- tend to talk about are um, they're, they're from the period of antiquity, uh, ancient history. So if you will, uh, the old Testament, so mm-hmm. things like the flood, things like David and Goliath, things like Moses, those are the stories that people would generally be talking about. And I would say, first of all, um, if, if you're, you're asking, um, well, you know, these people took – or the Bible took these stories from these people. I would, I would ask, how do you know that? Hmm. How do you verify that it was the Bible that took the story from someone else and not someone else taking the story from the Bible? The second thing that I would say is if these are true events, as we believe they are, then there would be records in other stories of hmm. these events as well. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the flood. You can you can look at almost any culture in the world, and you go back far enough in their history, and there's all all of them have some record of the flood. Mm. Does that disprove the Bible, or does that prove the Bible? To me, that's an evidence for the Bible because if all cultures have some kind of a record of the flood story, then that means at some point in time this really happened. Mm. So the question is, which one of these stories is the truth? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer to that is, I, obviously, I would say the Bible, not just because I believe the Bible is true, but because there is a historical detail to the way the Bible is written. Mm. Um, and, and that does need to be taken into account when you're looking at ancient literature, not just not just the similarities <clears throat> between one story and another, but where are the, the accounts most detailed and given out factually as opposed to uh, grandiose and mythologically. Fanciful. Exactly. Um, and so to me, that's that's one of the things that I would say um, in terms of, you know, the Bible has taken these stories. Well, first of all, you're hard-pressed to prove that. Um, so then second of all, what you need to start doing is 
ascertaining the historical reliability of scripture. And I think we're actually going to get to that one a little later on um, as we as we talk about the apologetics. Um, but it is important to understand that there is a historical reliability to scripture, um, and you need to ascertain that first before you start making accusations that the Bible just started stealing stories. Mm, good. Um, so, and then again, asking yourself if this is a true event, then of course other cultures, other nations would have records of this event. So, you know, when you look at the events that happened at nine eleven. Other nations are going to have an account of what happened on 9-11. Most of them are going to encircle America because it was so widely televised, so widely put out there that most people, if you say around the world what happened on 9-11, there's going to be some reference to what happened in New York City. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you have a massive wide flooding, um, as we read in Genesis, then there's going to be some record somewhere in other cultures and other nations of that. And that's what mm-hmm. we actually see. Very good. I wonder, to follow up on that, mm-hmm. does uh, does the dating of events affect this whole matter as well? That is to say, uh, if we date the biblical narrative at a certain date, then you find some other flood account. Uh, is it earlier or is it later in time when that was written? And if it's later in time, then which one came from which? which right. One? Yeah. You know what's interesting is that I don't um, – I don't actually put much stock in dates. Yes, uh, when people it's a start, problem, isn't it? It is because dates are all uh, – it's, it's subjective. It's relative. Um, you know, Unless you're talking about when the stars were aligned in a certain position in mm. the sky on a certain day because we do know that the universe works like a giant precision clock, um, it's hard to pinpoint dates down because how certain people categorize certain events – in, in certain dates, if you will, is going to vary. And scholars wind up with the same event a thousand years apart. Exactly. And so to me, I I think dates are helpful indicators for an individual who's trying to mark as an occasion, but that could be relative to, to something else. Because if I categorize something uh, as this being 2015, well, if you go over to Ethiopia, they're actually seven years behind us on their calendar. I didn't know that. Yeah. Are they honestly? They are. Yeah, yeah. They they actually they, their their calendar and their dating system is set up differently than than ours. I'm not surprising. Um, I shouldn't be surprised. And so so when you talk about dates, you have to be very careful and ask again, ask the right questions. Mm. You know, okay, by what are they using as their reference point for a date? Yes, or are they late dating Bible events? Exactly. Just for you know. Ridiculous reasons sure. to make it look like the Bible came from that other source. Sure, sure. And and uh, we see that actually in the New Testament with the Gospels, with mm-hmm. the, um, the, the Gnostic Gospels. We know the Gnostic Gospels came out several hundred years after the original Gospels were written. Um, and so, you know, there's a discrepancy and people say, well, you know, look at what the Gnostic Gospels say. They were written by quote-unquote eyewitnesses. Uh, well... All right, let's let's for argument's sake say that the events that were recorded were recorded by eyewitnesses, but they weren't actually even penned down for several hundred years. So you have a horrible case of telephone going down hundreds of years <laughs> later where the gospels were written first-hand account. You have Peter who actually walked and talked with Jesus. You have 
Paul, who is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of the the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, lived with him, talked with him, had interaction and encounter with him, writing these things down within their lifetime. And we have fragments of Greek gospel manuscripts Mm -hmm. dating into the early 2nd century. And one fragment, probably even dated to about 90 A.D., Yeah. Of John's Gospel. Yeah. So we can pretty clearly date John's Gospel. They yeah. found a piece of it, 980. Yeah. So, you know, again, dates are dates can be misleading, and you've got to ask the right questions when, when people start throwing out dates. Well, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Where are you getting your information? Yeah, very so. good. Good stuff. Um, so I'm going to throw this one at you. Steve, because you just said the first one was one you weren't going to answer. Um, so. uh, remember, my answer to the rest of these is go listen to Ravi for there a week. <laughs> um, so this question comes up. Um, some people say that Jesus was just some sort of apocalyptic prophet and not the Son of God. What would, what would your response be? Well, I would say that the New Testament documents are historically reliable, and that's a whole line of argument mm-hmm. right there. That's a whole uh, field of study right there. But they are. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and study it, and you'll find out they're very reliable historical documents. And uh, they do give us, by eyewitness accounts, they give us things that Jesus actually said. It's really clear in the New Testament that Jesus himself said he was the Son of God. Yes. And he accepted worship as God. He did. People worshipped him, and he didn't say, "Oh no, no, no! You got this wrong. Don't do that. I'm just a man like you." No, he performed the works of God. He yeah. had the attributes of God. He spoke words like no man has ever spoken before. He spoke the words of God. So to say he's just some sort of apocalyptic prophet of his day is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and I love um, I love C.S. Lewis's argument uh, when he speaks about God's. Uh, when he speaks about Jesus's lordship, his Godhead, and it's um, an argument that's been passed down through the generations. And basically, when you look at Christ, when you look at the Gospels, and you look at Christ's claims in the Gospels about being the Son of God, you are left with three options. The first is that he is just a uh, a lunatic, mm-hmm. that he truly believed he was the Son of God, but he was a crazy man. Um, you know, he was a good man, but he was just totally crazy and didn't know what he was talking about. Well, the problem you, with that yeah, is good. The problem ahead. with that yes. is when you actually start looking at the way Christ responds to the Pharisees mm. and the nuances of his answers he gives to people, you can automatically eliminate his sanity as as being in question. Yes. Um, that that he knew who he was, he knew who he was in God as being the Son of God, and and there was no question to him just thinking and believing with all of his heart that he was the Son of God. That's right. If he was a lunatic, he was the most sane lunatic the earth exactly. has ever known, right? <laughs> exactly. Read all his other words. They're amazing. That's right. So then you come to the point where you ask, well, was he a liar? Mm-hmm. So So maybe he just you know, fooled the people into thinking that he was the son of God, knowing full well he wasn't. And there, there's a movement out there today um, with the new atheists claiming that that's, that's perfectly acceptable to them, that they think that he was. You really can't um, take that into account, though, because, I mean, th- again, the things that he says, the things that he does, he's always upfront. He's always honest with people to the point of people wanting to kill him for how honest he is with them. Yes. 
Um, so you really, you know, have to take that off of the equation as well. Yes. And everything else he teaches is of such high moral caliber. Yeah. How do you say, but he's a liar. Right, exactly. He's a big fat liar. Exactly. So you're left with the question that he is Lord. And Lewis, um, I'm going to put this rather crudely, or not crudely, but um, uh, basically says, you know, you can, um, you can basically accept who he is as savior or reject it but there is no middle ground he left yes. he left no middle ground yes. you have to come face to face with he is who he says he is and so you have to say all right am i going to accept that or not mm-hmm. you know in evidence that demands a verdict josh mcdowell actually expands on c.s lewis and makes it four possibilities mm. so it's legend liar uh, lunatic okay. or lord we already talked about legend yeah. really no, the, the historicity of the uh, New Testament documents is sound. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, when you have um, uh, secular scholars, Secu- unbelieving right. scholars who praise Luke, um, not only in, in the gospel that he wrote, but also in Acts, as being one of the greatest historians of yes, all time. For the care with which he yes. wrote. Mm-hmm. You just, you can't get around it. That's right. Um, you know, talking about Christ's... Um, his his claim to being God as well. One of my favorite passages is when uh, the Pharisees are trying to trap him, and they're trying to. Um, I believe it's in John's Gospel. They're trying to you know corner him and and you know get him to essentially falsify who he is. Um, and you know he he basically pulls Abraham out and says, you know, you follow Abraham, but before Abraham was, I am. I am. And I, I love that because it's the exact same name God gives Moses when he tells him to go and, and save his people. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you think about uh, the Jewish people having such a visceral response to Christ and wanting to kill him right then and there. Why would they do that if he was just using poor grammar? Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's. I know absurd. some people who would kill for <laughs> poor grammar, but. <laughs> There's Guilt one of them in my church, less. man. I, you know, just last Sunday, I, I used, or two Sundays ago, I used the word ain't in the pulpit, and I happened to look at him, and he glared at me. <laughs> mm. That is excellent. That is excellent. But I just, I love that because he is just flatly throwing it to them. This is who I yes. am. I am the I am son the great of, yes. I am. Yes. That's quite a claim. Yes. Um, so, you know, when you look at particularly John, John, I believe, is just so littered mm-hmm. with not just implications, but him coming right out and saying, yes. I am the son of God. I am God. Yes. Three in one. And I am that aspect of God, the son. So much so that John doesn't hesitate to identify Jesus in his prologue as um you know, in the beginning was yes. the word, word. He was God, and He became flesh. Yes, yep. And so, um, to people who would say, you know, He never came out and said that, and I've I've heard that argument so many times. You you just you clearly have not thoroughly studied yes. through. You've not read the New Testament. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Yep. You yep. heard somebody say that. Yep. So. Um, the next one, and we actually we talked about this. The Gospels are only legendary accounts and not eyewitnesses. Um, you know, we're only touching on some of these things, but you can go and look up 
in detail uh, that these are indeed eyewitness accounts, that the New Testament is a historically accurate and reliable uh, book. Yes. That you can that you can trust not just as a good moral story, but this is this is actual history. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so the next question: <clears throat> um, Some books credited to Paul were not actually written by Paul, and probably the most curious one would be Hebrews. Hmm. I think many people credit Hebrews as being written by Paul. Um, you know, I have some ideas of what I'm going to say on this one, but Steve, what do you, what do you think about this one? About whether Hebrews was written by Paul? Uh, well, just books. That, this- yeah, just in general, books that are credited to Paul. Maybe they weren't written by him. I, th- yes. I think Hebrews is the the most popular one that's in question of whether or not right. he wrote it. Yeah, Hebrews is hard to say. Mm-hmm. It really is, and I've been all over the map. Apollos is a good guess because mm-hmm. he was uh, Greek and eloquent in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures. So it could have been Apollos. Uh, I think Martin Luther favored that view. Um, if it isn't Paul, why is this the only epistle in which he did not append his name? Mm-hmm. And maybe because of the nature of the persecution they were undergoing or whatever. So there are theories on that. But let's take the other books that are clearly attributed by everybody sure. to Paul, by all evangelicals, by all people with a high view of Scripture. So these folks would say, yeah, like, you know, maybe Paul didn't write Second Corinthians or maybe he didn't write Galatians or whatever. Um, my, I would like to say, well, 2,000 years of, of scholarship says you're wrong. Right. <laughs> so the burden of proof is kind of on you. Yeah. What do you have for your proof? And what they have is they'll come in with some, uh, I'll use a pejorative term, stupid little study, some dumb little <laughs> study on you. Know, these words and that word. And Paul never used this word in any of the other epistles. Mm-hmm. All right. I sometimes use a word that I haven't used in a long time. Right. Mm-hmm. Makes me want to use some words with those people that right. I've been using a long time. Um, the, just they, they, I think they have very bogus reasons for trying to say Paul didn't write this. There's just it, it's trendy, it's fashionable, it's scholarly to debunk the Bible. Yeah, right. Like if if you're writing a PhD paper and you write your paper saying Paul wrote Galatians after all. You're not going to get a PhD. Right. If you're writing your PhD paper and you say Galatians was actually written by a 14th century Asian woman. Right. Now you're getting your PhD. Yeah. It's just, yeah. you know, it's the scholarly, trendy, trendy thing to do nowadays. So uh, uh, all the evidence says Paul wrote yeah. the books attributed to him. Yeah. And I, and I would agree. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And my question to the person, even not getting into pulling out some of the details would be, um, okay, so you're saying Paul didn't write Galatians. What does that prove? Hmm. What does it prove? Good point. When you look at Scripture as a whole, and that's how the Bible has to be taken, you know, people love to pull out sections of the Bible, whether it's one book or one chapter or one verse, and they love to twist it and distort it and move it around. Um, when you look at the Bible as a whole, it's thorough. It's complete. It's consistent. It has one focus. It has one story. It has one thread, and that is the redemption of humanity. And so, when you, when somebody comes out and says, "Well, well, you know, what if Paul didn't write this?" Okay, you know what? I, I fully believe he did. I think there is enough evidence to support that he did. But let's say he didn't. I'll play the game. Let's say he did it. What does that prove in the grand scheme of what we see in Scripture? Nothing. Hmm. It still fits snugly right there in Scripture with everything else that we're seeing. There's nothing that's disagreeing with it. 
it was accepted as a book of the Bible um, back when it was being written. Um, and that's something that we need to remember is yes. that these books had um, had the stamp of approval of the apostles, yes. of the people at that time, clearly saying this aligns with what we see as scripture. And here we are today, somebody's 2,000 years later saying, oh, I don't think Paul really wrote that. Right. Well, I'm going to put you up against those early right. witnesses and they win. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's the thing that I think is most important is looking at it and saying, now if somebody were to pull out, you know, say like the assumption of Moses or something like that and say, well, why isn't this scripture or, you know, the, the, the gospel of Thomas or, you know, something like that. Well, now we can look at it and say, okay, in the grand scheme of the narrative and what we see throughout the Bible is this consistent with what we see in Scripture? No, and they are not. not. And that's and that's one of the things that I think people sometimes forget when they're when they're putting up a defense for for the Bible and for these books is that you know looking at Scripture as a whole as a sweeping narrative from beginning to end a complete story. Uh, <laughs> if it doesn't fit, it shouldn't be in there. Yes, in fact, that's one of the amazing things about the Bible is how it all does fit. You've got 39 mm-hmm. authors, yes. 1,400 years, several continents, three different languages, all kinds of different cultures, and it's one big story, and they all fit. Yeah, I've been reading the Bible for a lot of years now. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, I, I have yet to find something that doesn't fit with all the other parts. Yeah, I, I agree 100. percent Um. So the next question, um, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over the next one um, because I don't fully know what this person's saying. So we're just gonna go to um, to that uh, third one and or to that to that one after that about Daniel. And I think you were planning on shooting that back to me, weren't you? Uh, the book of Daniel was written more recently than it was supposed to have been. I can speak a little bit, there, right. but you go first. Sounds okay. like you've got more in your gun than I do. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, because I remember touching on this um, briefly at one point, and um, I, it, it's interesting because when you look at Daniel, um, there's no way it could have been written more recently than it was supposed to have been. Um, you know, we have clear accounts, not only from the Babylonians, but the Persians of Daniel. Um, we can see that he was, you know, prominent member in both of these societies when they came through. Mm. Um, but not only that, we can also see the prophecies that were made and how they applied to future events that happened. And that's, you know, that's what a lot of people like to look at and say, well, you know, this is why it was written more recently because these things were true. Um, instead of saying, well, they were true because God inspired Daniel to write them and mm. God made them happen to confirm his word. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people said the same thing about the book of Isaiah. But we, we, what we found with the Dead Sea Scrolls was, no, Isaiah was actually yes. written at a time when it was, when it was reported to be written. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it proved the Bible. And that's, that's all this is. This is just people coming out and saying, well, all these prophecies, they don't coincide with, you know, or, or they coincide and it's just too much of a coincidence. So it must have been written at a later date. And then, you know, it, it supports what the prophecy said instead of saying, no, they were actually prophecies. They were made for future events that hadn't happened yet. And we can look back and say, you know what? This is a proof and an evidence of what 
what we see in the Bible. Yes. You know, going back to Isaiah for a moment. Mm-hmm. So there were these theories that there's Isaiah and then there's second Isaiah or Deutero mm-hmm. Isaiah and so on, just as there were with, uh, with Moses's books. They, yes. they said they, they saw different authors. There's the J author, the D author, the E author, the P author, so on. Um, you, you know what? If you took all the love letters I've written to my wife via email in the past 10 years, and tried to figure out were they all written by the same man, you'd probably come out and say no. Yeah. yeah. Right? Or, or especially if you wanted it to say no. Exactly. You would definitely find out that I didn't actually write them all. But I did. Right. It, the whole field is just so uh, subjective, mm-hmm. and therefore their reasoning is so bogus. that. Yes. But now we know that Daniel wrote Daniel. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and to your point, Steve, over the course of years, you know, I mean, if you were to look at my writing – Forget in high school, even in college, and the level that I was writing at in college versus the level that I'm writing at now, you might look at one of my papers and say, no, you didn't write that. Different person. It, it was a different yes. person. It's a person who wasn't as you know learned, wasn't as well read, wasn't as well studied, didn't understand the rules of writing as well yes, as I do. That's right. Um, and so if I go to write a paper today versus back then, it's going to look very different mm-hmm. because – I know more. Yes. I know more. I understand more, not just about subject material and what makes good subject material, but also what makes good writing, what makes for mm-hmm. a well-written paper. Yes. Um, and so those things, um, while we look at them a lot of times and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense in real life, quote unquote, real life, we go back to the Bible and it's like, well, I don't want to apply that to the Bible. Right. Um, Funny. You're bringing back memories. I – um I, uh, not long ago, I had occasion to reread a paper I wrote for an apologetics course when I was in college. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was abominable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And like, at the time, I bet, you're, I bet you were thinking, this is the best thing I've ever oh, I written. Oh, was, I was. I was expecting real condem- <laughs> con- commendations, rather. I should have got condemnation. You know, I got a good grade of the thing, but it was awful, <laughs> man. <laughs> So, yes, we do change over time. Yeah, and, and it's only natural. And so, again, to to look at life in real life, and that's what we're talking about. The Bible is a real book written by real people who have real experiences, real emotions, real things going on. And to not make the same applications to them that we see in life today is just... It's, it's silly. Yeah. Yep. So... Um, Next question. Certain Old Testament characters and events were either fabricated or did not live the way the Bible portrays them. I have heard that it is the scholarly consensus that Moses or the Exodus didn't even exist. Yeah, there's no end to what we're going to hear. Yeah. Did or didn't exist. But uh, you know, there are other examples that we could put on the table mm-hmm. of things that the scholars doubted about the Old Testament that have now been proven beyond any doubt yeah. that they were, as it said. Again and again, the Bible's criticized, and then it stands, and it's proven right. Yeah. And then they go on to their next attack. So, for example, uh, the Bible, and the Bible alone, for the longest time, the Bible alone mentioned the Hittites mm-hmm. and the Hittite kingdom. And it was like, ha ha, he he, we don't find Hittites anywhere else in any literature. If it was this great kingdom, surely we would find mention of them. Ha ha, the Bible's stupid. There were no Hittites. 
and uh, Bible believing Christians just had to ha- just had to say, "Well, we'll wait and see." Mm-hmm. Well, one day I forget when I'm just going to make up a date in the 1940s or something. It was fairly recent. Some guys digging around and they found something, and they kept digging. They kept it. They they undug an entire Hittite kingdom, <laughs> complete with you know like great big burial rooms right. with soldiers and their armor and the horses and whatever, whatever. It's just amazing. And you know who gets the last ha ha. Right. Uh, the Hittites did exist, and only the Bible preserved their memory until yes. they were dug up out of the dirt again many yes. years later. So, uh, you know, let, let the critics come on and say, yeah, yeah, this guy didn't really live, or Moses and the Exodus didn't happen. Right. Uh, the Bible gets vindicated over and over. Right. Which, interesting enough, you would think Moses would be the least attacked character in the Bible because, you know— uh, I think it was it was in the early 90s when an expedition went out to try to locate what happened and 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 again disprove this, and they kept looking and searching um, in the Red Sea at a place where they thought. Um, the Egyptians would have gone down. Um, and it's funny because I remember many people thinking, oh, it's this place that at a certain time of the day, the tides go down and, you know, <laughs> they crossed at this time. And so, you know, it made way. And my wife has the greatest response to that. You know, she's like, okay, so that means that, you know, either either God really truly parted the waters in a place like it's described in the Exodus. And he he drowned them all out, or he used a puddle to drown, to drown the greatest them. army in yes. the world. Isn't at that the time. crazy? So <laughs> you know, but what they found was they actually started heading a little further south because what we think of Egypt today is very mm. different than the scope of what it looked like at the time, um, and 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 you know the extent of what the kingdom was, and this place that was actually they needed uh, scuba gear and everything to get down in there. They found guess what. You know, broken down chariots. They found rotting bones. They found you know all these things that supported what the Bible was saying mm. about this event that wiped out the greatest army at that time. And my wife teaches ancient literature, or I'm sorry, ancient history over at Redeemer Classical, where you taught Steve. Um, and one of the things that she found in her research and study in a secular book was this mention uh, in, during ancient Egypt of a, a, an unknown prince or an unnamed prince, possibly pointing to Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know you look at the time frame and the people that are mentioned around this time, and there's this unnamed prince. Uh, floating around Egyptian history that no one can identify. Hmm. Could it be Moses? I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it's certainly, if you look at scripture, it's certainly possible because it fits kind of the timeline of where he would have been within Egypt's history. Hmm. Um, and it's something, you know, that's that should at least be considered and not just wiped off as, oh, no, that's not it. Pretty cool. So. Very cool. Um. So I think this is uh, this is going to be really up your wheelhouse, Steve. Alternative explanations for the resurrection, mm-hmm. um, and I'm assuming that you know what uh, this person is referring to is there's the whole um, fainting theory that mm-hmm. Christ was you know he had just basically fainted on the cross, the passed out theory. He wasn't really. I mean, essentially, it all boils down to he wasn't really truly dead. Or uh, the disciples came and stole the body. Yeah. Or the Jewish authorities stole the body. Yeah. 
So maybe I'll start with that one. If the sure. Jewish authorities stole the body and then this resurrection story got going, what did they need to do to stop the resurrection story? Here's the body. There, we that got would it. have been so easy. Obviously, they did not have the body. Yeah. They did not steal the body. Uh, if, uh, if the disciples stole the body... Well, let me ask you, what, what's your response to that? What would you say is wrong with that one? Yeah, so uh, you have a time in history where you are about to be put to death mm-hmm. for believing that Christ was raised from the dead. If I knew the truth... If it's a story... Uh, hey, I was just kidding, yeah, guys. Yeah, a story like, I made up, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not willing to die for something that I made up. Exactly. Um, that, so, yeah, I agree. I think that one is uh, just as ludicrous. Yes. And then there's the swoon theory. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned. Well, I, I don't know. If I'm hanging on a cross for a couple hours and I have a Roman spear on my side, I think I'm dying. Yeah. I, I really think I'm dying. Plus... These guys were good at recognizing death yes. and non-death. It was their job to make sure he's dead that yes. day. So they're going along breaking legs so that the people will die faster. They realize that we don't need to break his legs. He's already gone. He's yes. dead. They recognize this. There's no breathing. They might have checked his pulse when they got him down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but they knew he was dead. Jesus was buried. He was dead. He was in a tomb for three days. Mm-hmm. Um if they laid, if I just swooned and they laid me in a tomb for three days, I'd be dead by day three, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so th- it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, either uh, you know, either Jesus rose from the dead, or I don't have an or. Yeah, there, there is no or. That is, that is uh, again one of those historical events that not only when you look at it from a logical perspective, but when you look at the historical account of what actually happened. You can't deny the resurrection. Yes. I mean, you you look at all four Gospels. All four Gospels have an account of the women going to the tomb. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that because a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. So who cares if the woman saw it? Yes. If the men didn't see it, it doesn't count. This also goes to the accuracy of those eyewitness accounts. Yes. They would actually report that, well, a woman went first. Yes, exactly. Um, And, you know, I think, too, when you look at, uh, again, what the Romans did to Christ, we talked about not breaking the legs. Well, even the spear piercing his side, how the blood and water flowed out separately is only – is a condition – I think it's called – I can't remember what it's called, but it's it's a condition where the pericardium fills with – fills with water yeah, you're dying and well you're dead at that you're point dead, so yes. so when you pierce that in the separation of the blood and water comes out that's a confirmation of death mm-hmm. um that separation in there so um there is just so many and, evidence and you also have you know if there was no resurrection how do you account for the change in the disciples yeah here they were all despondent and yeah. headed off to go fishing and yeah. you know forget it we thought he was the christ and, yeah. not. and then all of a sudden they're boldly proclaiming yeah. the name of Jesus, even though they're threatened with yeah. death. How do you even explain the Apostle Paul, who was yeah. fiercely anti-Christian, anti-Christ? He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him, and Saul becomes Paul, and he becomes like the greatest defender of the resurrection. Yeah, exactly. How do you explain that if he didn't actually see Jesus reappear out of the heavens and say, Guess what? I'm Jesus. You believe in me now. Go preach. Yep. Yeah. What's interesting is um, I was having a discussion with um, someone recently. I can't remember who it was. And we were talking about you know the difference between how many faiths are born out of um, lack of adversity. You look at the Muslim faith. 
near as near as I can tell and near as I can see in the records, Muhammad wasn't being threatened hmm. life or death for for saying the things that he was saying. Um, is it Joseph Smith from yes. the Mormons? Mormon. Um, wasn't being threatened Not at all. for the things that he was saying and the things that he was purporting. Um, you know, and you go down the list, you know, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, you know, these people weren't being threatened with their lives for believing the things that they were believing at the time that they were brought about. Christianity is the only faith that was literally, you believe this and you die. And they were boldly, proudly proclaiming Christ risen and and kept doing it, even after watching friend after friend after friend die for their faith, for what they said. Yes. Who should I believe? I should believe the guy who dies for what he said is true. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. So um, – this is this is really good, man. I'm glad we had a chance to to sit down and do this. Um, now we are uh, running on to the hour mark, so I'm going to let us run a little bit later to to hit a few more of these. Um, Take your pick. So, all right. Um, all right. Let's let's hit this one. I think this is going to be good. Aspects of Jesus were taken from other religious figures from other religions. I think you should speak to that. Shoot it to me, huh? Um, What's interesting is I would say, no, there is no other religious figure out there that said and made the claims Uh, that Jesus claimed. No other figure, not even Muhammad, claimed to be the son of God. Hmm. Um, He was a a prophet. He claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to have been visited by angels. But no other figure in history, uh, historical figure in history, uh, reported to be the son of God and said the things that he said and did the mm. things that he did. When you look at what Christ came and did and the environment in which he came and did it in, the things he was saying and the things he was doing were so radically different from anyone else. Mm. You know, when he tells the uh, the Jewish people, he's a Jew himself, um, born in the Roman nation, which is the most oppressive um, nation in history. Um, ruled with an iron fist, literally an iron fist. If you stepped out of line, you were going to be crucified, um, or at the very least, you were going to be whipped. Mm. Um, you know, and you look at those things and what Christ tells his people to do. People come and bring a coin to him and say, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You, you know, we, we don't even, we can't even comprehend. We think our tax system is bad in America. <laughs> we can't even comprehend the tax system that was going on back then and how people were cheated and swindled. And Christ just looks at it and says, hey, whose inscription's hey. on here? Oh, it's Caesar's. Okay. Well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. Which is an amazing way to answer anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's there's there's so much in there that I think we sometimes miss it. You know, not only is Christ basically saying, Pay your taxes. You know, just shut up and pay your taxes. You know, he's he's an earthly authority figure. He's put here by me, by the way. Um, for your protection, as we read in Romans, what Paul says about authority and government. Um, so pay your taxes. But he's also saying, you know what? The money, the physical stuff that's here, yeah, give it to him. He, he can have it. Who cares? Who cares? Because then you render unto God the things that are God's. And guess guess what's God's? Yes. Everything. Yes. Everything belongs to and God. we care about it. 
Um, and so, you know, you look at that response and you look at all of the things that he says when people come and try to trap him and people talk about forgiveness, you know, um, when he talks about, you know, your neighbor comes and, you know, they ask you to, you know, carry their tunic for, or they ask you for your tunic, you know, and well, give them this as well. You know, Christ isn't about, you know, what can I do just to get by and be a good person? Yes. Um, he, he enters into a person's soul in such a way that no one in history has ever done before. I don't care how peaceful and good Gandhi was. He was still a man. Um, at the end of the day, I believe he was more legalistic than anything because there were so many rules to follow um, in terms of what you should and shouldn't do for people. Hmm. Same thing with the Buddha. Um, you know, when you look at all these religions and how all these people basically the way to appease God or the way to appease the universe is by do, do, do. Hmm. Christ comes into the Not world Christ. and says, you can't do. You are so flawed and so broken. You can't do. And so I'm going to do it for you. Where else do we find that? Yeah. 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 But as you were saying, too, just I am so impressed with what Jesus actually said on so many occasions, Mm -hmm. on every occasion. It's just amazing what he comes out with. Yeah. This man was God. This is God in the flesh. No one ever spake words like these, the people said in those days. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, so I'm going to uh, kind of jump down a little bit um, mm-hmm. into some of these other questions here. Um, these are more, uh, I think, apologetic questions from the perspective of someone who's a believer. So these were maybe the first set of questions that we asked were apologetic questions from the standpoint of an unbeliever and what they might ask and things that you could interact with them on. These are going to be more apologetic questions from the standpoint of, okay, I'm a believer. What about these things? Um, so the, the first one is actually, um, if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. And that was um, actually a quote from Voltaire. Um, basically Voltaire saying that, you know, there's no such, you know, if there's no such thing as God, somebody is eventually going to make up God. Um, and we actually see that in many other religions that God is made up. So the question that I would throw out there to kind of nuance this and, and put a little more clarity in it, how do we know that the God of the Bible is the God that we should serve? That's that C.S. Lewis question. You start off um, proving, I'm not sure that's the right word, indicating that there's got to be a great being. Yeah. Now, how do I identify that great, great being with the God of the Bible? Yeah. Uh, here, here's how I would approach that. Maybe you'd approach it in a different way. Sure. But uh, I'd, I'd, I would do it by the process of elimination. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look at the God of Islam, and I'm going to say, Nah, I don't think so. Yeah. I'm going to look at the God of, uh, or all the gods of the Hindus and say, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. And I'm going to wind up with the Judeo-Christian God, mm-hmm. uh, the only God that makes sense to me. And I don't think that's just because I'm a Westerner, steep in Western culture. It's the only God that makes sense yeah. uh, and the only God I could worship and serve. Yeah. We've uh, said it before on this podcast, when you can look at a religion and you can see the fingerprints of man yes. in that religion man can you run the other way yes um you know and so you yeah. look at all the other religions and you see the requirements 
You see the things that are placed upon the people who follow that religion. Um, you and, see that heaven is a harem in the sky. Exactly. Uh, see, I wonder who, who came up with that. Exactly. <laughs> a guy. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of guys. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and you, look at, you look at the things that the Bible puts out there. Man writes about things that man knows and understands. So look at the, the, the religions and, and, and show me anything in there that isn't understandable. Even, even the many gods of the other religions of Hinduism or the you know, Egyptian gods or the Greek gods, all those gods have elements and fingerprints of human hmm. interaction going on inside of them. They're, they're basically, they're superhumans. They're humans that are flawed, that have great power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and quote Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. They're not responsible though. Um, but look at what God says. God comes down and says, you know what? I'm one person or I, I am one God, but I'm three persons. That's a concept and an idea that would so blow. Uh, it, it does. It so blows my mind. How, how do I even begin to define that and understand that from a human perspective? There is nothing in humanity that we see in, in you know, our, our, Weak attempts to try to define that are that they're just that they're weak attempts. There is nothing we see in human nature that suggests a concept like that, the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yes. We can fathom immortality. We can fathom an end of time. We can't fathom time before it began. Mm-hmm. And yet God says, "I exist before before what you know as time. I've always mm-hmm. existed." Mm-hmm. And so when you look at ideas like that, those are things that that we as humans couldn't invent because we have no concept for them. But the Bible puts them out there for us to be confused over, for our minds to explode with trying to rationalize and reason them and still come away empty-handed. And the Bible just says this this is who God says this is who I am. Mm-hmm. You're not going to understand it because I'm God and you're not. Yes. You, you know, um you were mentioning heaven there and if 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 the biblical accounts of heaven were invented by men, they were pathetic men or women, because frankly, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that much of what heaven will actually be yes. like, yes. and it's not made to be that attractive. Right. Like if I'm a guy and I'm making up heaven, I'm going to go with the Viking Valhalla. Yeah. You know where you go, you get to hack your enemies to pieces all day every day. That's if right. you get cut, you're regenerated later that night, and you get to fight again, and you party all night every night. That's right. I mean, there's a man's heaven, right? If you're going to make one up, so the heaven of the Bible is like boring by comparison. I don't really mean that, you know. I, I understand it's an awesome place because Christ is there, yes. and we love Christ, and He's at the center of our affections. He's at the center of our existence in heaven. But that's going to appear boring to people who don't love Christ. Yeah. Um, so hard to imagine people just made that up. Yes. Yes. I completely agree. Um, so we'll do two more. Um, should Christians prone to anxiety simply and only focus and be immersed with the truth of the scriptures? As opposed to what other things? I, I would like say the news or what? I would say that this comes from, um, if, if I remember correctly, this comes from, um, the content of like, uh, should Christians be reading uh, like the Quran? Should oh. Christians be studying other forms of uh, literature or other forms of uh, scriptures, other religions, and kind of get into those? Um, hmm. 
and this is a person who is prone to anxiety mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. Well, a person who's prone to anxiety needs to be careful about what they're going to read anyway. Yeah. Like, I've just now been reading, that's going to take me 42 years, but I'm reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Oh, wow. Do not read that if you're, you know, beset <laughs> with anxiety or depression, man. Yeah. Or there's, I read the three volumes of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. It's the prison camps in Russia, and he was an inmate for a while. Just absolutely don't read that if sure. you've got anxiety. So, nothing odd if I would also say, yeah, I wouldn't read the Koran right now if you're right. all full of anxiety. Read the Bible. Yeah. And let it lift up your soul and point you to God. And- yeah. 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 Oh, I agree. And you know, it's it's funny because the 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 cliched saying out there, you know, the way um, bank tellers, the way you know, store merchants learn to spot counterfeit money is by memorizing and studying the true currency. The real. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many counterfeits out there that the way they're able to detect what's not real is by studying what is real. Makes sense. Um, you know, and I would say. You know, to somebody who is really, truly interested in defending the gospel, you know, I think there is benefit to to reading other religions. Um, now, yes. I, I would nuance that with whatever time you're spending studying mm-hmm. the other religion, I would at least double or triple the time you're studying the Bible. Um, because you are, we as humans are always prone to wander, yes. um, and we're always being pulled, and it doesn't take much to pull us right into something else. And, and, and most of us don't have time to do all that reading anyway. Yeah. So again, I would say now I'm a little bit tongue in cheek. Just listen to Ravi Zacharias. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, do that. Also, you know, uh, try to find try to find godly mentors who have kind of mm-hmm. wandered through the paces of this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whether it is Ravi Zacharias on the radio who can kind of, you know, through the internet teach you certain things and, and help navigate you through those things, or you know, if there's a, a physical real life person who can do that, you know, find somebody who's who's navigated those waters and can kind of help answer the questions that you might have because you are going to. Re- the Quran, you are going to see things say, wow, that, that does look and sound awfully similar to what I'm seeing and reading here in scripture. I'm sure. How do I, how do I reconcile those two things? Hmm. Um, you know, and so it's important to be able to have people who can answer those questions so that you're not just kind of wandering out there on your own. Yeah. Very good. So. Absolutely. All right. Um, last one. Um, so this one is, uh, do other Christians fear their last breath? So from the perspective of the believer, I know what's coming after this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to die. I'm still afraid to die. Thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, it just happens that now I feel like Ravi Zacharias. This is the first <laughs> I've ever felt anything like Ravi Zacharias, but he always has stories to tell. So it just happens that this morning at 8 a.m., I met at a Panera near me with an 80-couple-year-old man in our church who's having a uh, pacemaker installed for his heart tomorrow, and he was feeling frightened by the whole event, and I sure don't blame him. Yeah. Uh, but when we got together, he clarified. He said, I, I'm really, I, I'm not at all afraid of, of uh, dying, or I'm not afraid of death. It's the dying process yeah. that I might not be real fond of. Yeah. Um, so it was cool that, you know, here he is able to say, I know what happens at death. Yeah. I'll be in joy. I'll be with Jesus. I'll be in glory. 
I'll be where I want to be. I won't look back. I won't say, oh, shucks, I miss Earth. Um, it's just you know, the pain because we yeah. still have a body and we still feel pain and yes. so on and so forth. Now, you know, you might also fear your last breath uh, in this sense. You know, there are there are people and things here you love. Mm-hmm. And so, and this isn't fear in your last breath, though. You hate to leave them. Yeah. Hate to leave them behind. That That's expected. That's yeah. normal. But do you fear your last breath? Christ came to deliver those who, throughout their lifetime, were subject to bondage through the fear of death. Yeah. So, I'd say, yeah, probably not. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I used to, um, I, I, I'm a very weird individual um in terms of i i really i don't have many of the anxieties that of people that i've come into counter with um Mm. the things that i uh tend to i guess worry over or or think about fret about are, are very different than than many other people and so life and death has never bothered me that whole concept mm. um i i will say that the the thought of um being a martyr doesn't sound pleasant to me yeah. um unless they I, cut my head off fast yes exactly i would i would go with paul's approach and claim yes. my roman citizenship and <laughs> just get it done and over with um mm-hmm. but but the you know the idea of you know the christians who are, are tortured and yeah i'm not i'm not a big fan of of that mm-hmm. um but the idea of just dying doesn't doesn't bother me, but I will say something that Greg said that um, has actually helped me um, understand why people would. Yeah, I'm thinking of something I want to say there too. Go ahead. Um, is you know we were not created to die. Mm. Mm. Um, if you go back to God's intent for humanity, we were created to live forever in glory with Him. And through the process of sin, you know, that's been corrupted and distorted and people will, will not obviously live with him for glory and ever. But I, I think it makes sense that to some extent that is still embedded in us. Hmm. That concept of death and not wanting to it's, die it's is still in us. there. Hmm. And it's still not a comforting thought because that's not what we were designed to be. That's good. Um, and so, Greg, I'm shooting you the credit for that. So even though you're not with us here in person, we still have your wonderful teaching here. There's Greg. You know, an- another thing, I'm thinking about this, and I want to be understanding toward and compassionate with the person who might think, you know, I- I'm a Christian, but I do fear my last breath. Why? What's wrong with me? Uh, I might say, uh, maybe there's doubt in, in their mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I- there's uncertainty. Is the faith really true? Sure. Am I in the right place? Is Jesus really Lord? Am I a true believer? And I want to say to that person, um, you shouldn't be terribly surprised about it if there, if you struggle with doubts. Doubt is just another one of the many results of our fallenness. Yeah. It strikes some people more than others. So these are the mental effects mm-hmm. of the fall. And uh, I, I'd be surprised if I could find a Christian who doesn't, at least in some way and at some time, struggle with doubt. Mm-hmm. It's a result of our fallenness. So you may imagine yourself lying on your deathbed. You're thinking, oh, man, I hope it was all right. I hope I believe in the right Savior. I hope it's all real. And you might have doubts about, did I get this all right? Uh, That's not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as you you said, Steve, that's, that's the result of being in a fallen world. 
you it know, is. the, the, the plea of the, uh, the father, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Great prayer, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Steve, we are, uh, out of time. So many questions and there were so many more. Um, we didn't have time to answer all of them. Um, but, um, again, those resources that we talked about, please, if, if you do have serious questions, go and check those out. Um, They've been a tremendous help to me, um, Steve. I know they've been a tremendous help to you as they well. They really have been. Um, and so, you know, I think um, I think something to remember when we talk about dealing with apologetics. First of all, it's a very humbling hmm. and okay thing to say, you know what? That's a great question. I don't have an answer for you. Good. And to me, I find it freeing. Mm-hmm. I find it freeing to be able to look at someone and say, you know, that's really, that's good. That, that question is great. I, I don't have an answer for it. Here's you. how okay that is. I did that tonight twice on this podcast. That's right. We had a question. I said, no, you, brother, That's you right. take that one. <laughs> That's right. You know, and so be free to not know everything. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I this is going to sound really bad, Steve, but to me, this is one of the freeing things about being reformed. I don't have to know everything hmm. because I know that what I'm saying isn't hinging on that person's decision to receive Christ or not. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, people would look at that and say, well, that's being fatalistic. No, it's being realistic that there is nothing I can do or say that is going to argue someone into heaven or that is going to argue them out of hell. But I also know that if I pray that that has some influence and some effect on what God is doing in people's lives. Mm. And so to me, the greatest form of apologetics is prayer. Mm. If you, if you want to see somebody come to Christ, prayer is the best thing that you can do. Sweet. Um, So, you know, learn, study, enjoy it, grow in your faith. But at the end of the day, just be praying and read scripture. Yes. And, and pray and say, Oh father, this is true. Show me. Yeah. Look out. Yep. Yep, because he will. Mm-hmm. Steve, this was so good. I'm glad we had an opportunity to do this. It's a pleasure, man. Can I just tell our hearers one more funny thing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at you across the room from me, and you, there's this boom that your mic is hanging yeah. from. And we're, you are looking through two little holes in the boom. And from here, as the night went on, it looks more and more like you have these weird glasses on. And I'm looking through these weird lenses at your eyes. So I'm going to have a hard time not seeing you looking like that now. But that's just a little extra for the night. We really need to get like a video cast set up in here so people can see. I can like, show the them that. Or it looks like you're at the opt- optometrist right, and you're right. looking through the gizmo or something. <laughs> now you're going to feel a light puff of air. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Steve, we just rocked the Casbah. Rocked it. These go to 11.